Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. Well, let's continue to worship God as we open the scriptures together. Uh, we are in the book of Jonah. If you have a Bible, you're following along uh, in the scriptures. You open the Bible right to the middle. You'll probably hit Psalms. Start working your way to the right. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those guys. And then the minor prophets include the book of Jonah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah is where we are. And we're in the last chapter Jonah chapter 4. You recall Jonah's story. Um, He was a prophet from the northern part of the kingdom in Israel. And in the first few verses, God does something really unique. He calls Jonah not to speak a word to the northern kingdom. He actually calls Jonah to leave Israel and to go to a city called Nineveh and prophesy for him there. He called him out of the promised land. He called him out of Israel to minister God's word to this pagan nation, this rival nation. Uh, The Assyrian Empire and one of their key cities, Nineveh, is where Jonah was supposed to go. Of course, he doesn't. Famously, Jonah goes in the opposite direction. He flees to a city called Tarshish. Instead of going east to Nineveh, he goes west to Tarshish. Um, The Lord chases him down, Throughout the rest of chapter 1, in chapter 2, Jonah comes to repentance. He says, okay, I submit. I'll do what you want me to do. So that's what we see in chapter 3. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches God's word, and a remarkable revival happens. Thousands upon thousands of Ninevites heed God's word and repent in this famous way, in this remarkable way. They They turn from their sin and seek God for mercy. And that's where we pick the story up in Jonah chapter 4. We're going to see how Jonah responds to this powerful testimony of God's compassion and mercy on the Ninevites. So Jonah chapter 4, I'll read all these verses for us. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And Jonah was angry. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the booth's shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might Be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And Jonah asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the early morning of October 16, 1946, a Lutheran pastor named Henry Garrick visited the few members of his parish in Nuremberg, Germany. The men who showed up were not your typical congregation. They were all about to be hanged for committing the most heinous crimes imaginable during World War II. Pastor Garrick walked with each of the ten condemned men from their prison cells to the gallows, and when the rope was put around their necks, they were each asked if they had any last words. The first man, Joachim von Ribbentrop, he had been the foreign minister of the Third Reich, one of Adolf Hitler's closest advisors, and with his last words, von Ribbentrop said this, I place all of my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sin. May God have mercy on my soul. Von Ribbentrop then turned to Garrick, his pastor, and said, I'll see you again. The black hood was pulled over his face, the 13-coiled noose was put around his neck, and he dropped through the trap door to his death. In his book, War and Grace, author Don Stevens shares how Pastor Garrick served as the prison chaplain for the U.S. military, and he was the prison chaplain for the Nazi war criminals at the prison in Nuremberg, and it's reported that in all, Garrick led eight Nazi war criminals to repent of their sin and put their trust in Jesus, some of these men who had committed the worst crimes against humanity ever. But what do you think happened when Garrick returned to America? What kind of reception do you think he received? Well, what happened was that he became the target of vicious abuse and violent threats. Several years later, after Garrick died, his oldest son found a pile of letters stored in his father's desk, all of them hate mail filled with anger and every slanderous name you could think of at the time. A Jew hater, a Nazi lover, a socialist, that he should have been hung right alongside those other men. What do you think? Is it possible that these vile Nazi criminals could repent, could be forgiven? That their souls could be saved? And what about the person who preys on children? 
What about the extremist who burns people alive or cuts off people's heads? Could God show them compassion? I mean, we all know there are sins, and then there are sins, the big ones, right? Could people like this be saved right alongside you? The question is, how do you respond to God's compassion? How do we as a spiritual family collectively respond to God's compassion? Could God be too compassionate? Well, what we see today from Jonah chapter 4 is that very often God's compassion exceeds our logic. God's compassion exceeds our logic to the point of offense. Jonah is offended that God would have mercy on the Ninevites. And it seems odd, right? Like, how could we struggle with God being compassionate? Compassion and grace are beautiful, wonderful characteristics, right? Well, in the story of Scripture, God had a chosen people, a chosen nation, the Israelites. They were a people of his own possession. And he gave them a special mission to be a light to the world, to be a blessing to the nations around them. And God showed favor to Israel in unique ways. But Israel constantly took their special status too far. And it turned into elitism rather than focusing outward on how to demonstrate God as the king of the nations, rather than living as a community that constantly pointed people to God, they turned inward and eventually led them to feel a sense of superiority. It led them to think that God's compassion was limited to themselves. For the most part, their attitude to people and cultures and ethnicities outside of their own was an attitude of condescension, resentment, and self-importance. And in this chapter, Jonah chapter 4, we come face to face with what could be the most drastic example of this self-righteous elitism. A man, a prophet no less, who had complete disdain for God's compassion. Now, if you've been on this journey with us, you're probably expecting the opposite. You'd expect Jonah to be the most celebratory, enthusiastic, cheerful prophet that ever lived after what he's been through, after the lessons he learned. He received God's mercy in chapter 2. He saw thousands of people come to repentance and launched a citywide revival in chapter 3. You might say that what happened in Nineveh was one of the greatest evangelistic successes in the history of the world. This is every preacher's dream. He should be thrilled, right? He should be leading the cheers, crying tears of joy over what's happened to all these people, overwhelmed that of all people, God would still use him. But instead, he preaches his sermon, he heads east of the city, and he waits for God's wrath to wipe out the people that he just preached to. He wants to see fireworks. He wants to see the mushroom cloud. He wants Sodom and Gomorrah part two, bigger, better, louder, deadlier. But instead of a bloodthirsty show, he gets nothing. 
God mercifully allows Nineveh to remain intact. And Jonah is so bitter about it, he says to God, please take my life, for it is better to me to die than to live. Why? Because there is something Jonah can't stand more than the sinful Ninevites. More than he can't stand the sinful Ninevites, he can't stand the compassionate God. He says to God, I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. And sure enough, look what you've done. Just kill me now. But God's patience and gentleness with Jonah is striking. Ironically, God kills Jonah with kindness. And over the course of these next verses, God graciously converses with Jonah. And he's going to give Jonah an experiential lesson in how ridiculous his self-righteousness is. So verse 5 tells us that Jonah had gone east of the city in order to, as I said, have a good view of what would become of the city. Jonah builds himself this little booth, a little shack to keep himself shaded. This is the Middle East after all. It's dry, it's hot, the sun is on full blast. And then God kindly appoints this plant to grow beside and eventually over Jonah so as to deliver Jonah from the heat and discomfort of being outside the city and totally exposed to the sun. And we're told that this makes Jonah exceedingly glad. He's no longer angry. He's glad. He rejoices in God's salvation for himself from the heat. However, by the next morning, God appoints another agent of creation, this time a worm, and the worm eats and destroys this helpful, shady plant. The day begins, the sun rises, an east wind starts blasting, and once again, Jonah is exposed to the elements, and just like before, when God spared the Ninevites, Jonah complains, it is better for me to die than live. Just kill me now, God. And God responds to Jonah with grace and gentleness. He almost sounds like a calm, insightful therapist. He says again, now Jonah, do you do well to be angry? What's your anger really accomplishing for you? Jonah is acting like this petulant, bratty child, and God is gracious, asking him questions. God is not berating him. He's not shaming Jonah. God's just gently prodding. Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah, like a tantruming child, digs his heels in. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And so again, like a good therapist, God has drawn out Jonah's rage and bitterness and hard-heartedness. God is doing heart work on Jonah, trying to help Jonah see what's really in there, this sinful attitude that has corrupted him. And it's at this point when Jonah's hypocritical, pharisaical heart is on full display that God drops the A-bomb, verses 10 and 11. He says, Jonah, listen. You pity this plant. You have compassion over this plant, a plant that you did not make or grow, 
a puny plant that was born one day and died the next. Okay, so should I not then have compassion and pity on the tens of thousands of people in Nineveh? And if you're so concerned with creation care, with your love for this plant, there's even a bunch of cattle in Nineveh. Should I not have mercy on the cows, Jonah? You can sense the irony here, right? With the inclusion of the cattle, God is subtly mocking Jonah. His main point is, should I not pity the thousands upon thousands of people in Nineveh? Would you really rather me destroy them? Should I not rather have compassion? And the book ends there. We do not know how Jonah responds to God's question because that's not the point. The point of the book is not how Jonah will respond. The point of the book is how will you respond. Jonah was offended by God's compassion. How could you do this? Have mercy on my enemies. And Jonah responded to God's compassion with self-righteous, hypocritical, pharisaical, bitter, bratty rage. So drawing from this chapter, I want to give us three alternative ways of relating with God and responding to his compassion. I want to help us learn how we can avoid Jonah-like resentment. First, Learn from your emotions. Learn from your emotions. We see from the very start of this chapter that Jonah responds with anger. Four times total, we are told Jonah was angry. He is frustrated with God. He is annoyed that God has had compassion like this. He's angry. And it's this feeling of anger that then drives him to want to die. He is so overwhelmed with rage. He says, just kill me. I would rather die than see you have mercy on these people. And it's this feeling of anger that God then questions him about. Two times he asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? So there's something about this emotional response of anger that God wants Jonah to reflect on and process. Because Jonah's anger can teach Jonah something about himself. Our emotions are a window into our souls. Through our emotions, we can see what's really going on in there. That's why I say, learn from your emotions. So here's what's true about anger. Anger is an emotional response to a sense of injustice. Jonah has a sense God has done something wrong. He should have destroyed the Ninevites. They deserve to die, and instead God showed them compassion. God's just letting them live, and that's not right. So Jonah's anger is tied to his sense of injustice, and in his anger, he attacks. That's what anger is good for, right? It motivates us to act to attack the thing we're angry at. And in this case, Jonah verbally attacks God. He says, I knew you were like this. That's why I went to Tarshish in the first place. So that's why I want to encourage us. Listen to and learn from your emotions. Spend time at 
at certain points in your day, at some point in your day, in silence. Quiet your heart. Quiet your phone, maybe. (laughs) Check in with yourself. Where are you at emotionally? And what do these different emotions teach you about yourself? Instead of letting your emotions dominate and control you, listen to them. Learn from them and take them to God. This exact process is counseled in Psalm chapter 4. In this psalm, King David says this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So the first thing David says here is, be angry. Nothing wrong necessarily with being angry. At the same time, don't sin in your anger. Instead, ponder in your own heart, on your bed, and be silent. So David counsels us, spend time in silent, reflective solitude and ultimately work towards a place where you put your trust in the Lord, not letting your emotions control you. In other words, listen to and learn from your emotions. Process them before God, and that habit will help your emotions, especially anger, not lead you into sin. But if you're just flying through life, never slowing down, never sitting in silence, never checking in with yourself and God, then you're not going to be aware of your emotions, and you're going to act solely off your emotions, and you're going to sin, like Jonah does here. So I encourage you, whenever you have space, maybe it's in the morning, early, maybe it's on your commute in the afternoon, Maybe it's before your bedtime prayers. Ask yourself, where am I at emotionally? Is there anger? Is there sadness? Is there shame? Is there fear? Is there joy? And that self-awareness can enable self-control. And just honesty and ultimately faithfulness. How can we respond to this chapter and to God's compassion? Listen to and learn from your emotional reactions. Secondly, set aside your agenda. Set aside your agenda. Friends, God has an agenda in this world. And through the story of God saving the Ninevites, we find out that God's agenda clashes with Jonah's agenda because it would have been a political success for Jonah and Israel if God would just have wiped out Assyria and Nineveh. Israel's next door neighbor is the empire of Assyria, including the city of Nineveh. So it would have been for Israel's political and national fortune if God just annihilated their nearest rival. And that's Jonah's agenda. It's a political one, not a spiritual one. He cares more about Israel's political prosperity. He cares more about this stupid plant than he does people. 
This makes me recall a bizarre conversation I probably had 12 years ago, maybe more, when the U.S. had troops in Iraq and we were engaged more deeply in the conflict in the Middle East. And I was talking to someone about the whole situation. I can't remember exactly what about it we were talking about, but eventually they made this comment. I don't see why we don't just level their entire country. I mean, why don't we just bomb them until we flatten the entire landscape until all the terrorism is gone and all the military intervention is unnecessary. Just wipe it clean. And they were perfectly serious. In their minds, this sort of thing would be to our political and national interests, and so it is justifiable. It's the right thing. Millions of people will die, but... Now, you may be thinking that's an extreme example, but it illustrates our need to constantly align our agenda with God's agenda, and God's agenda is redemption. God's desire is for people, even the most sinful people. Now, is God just? Is God holy? Absolutely. Does God tolerate sin? No. But as the apostle says in 1 Peter chapter 4, judgment begins in the house of God. We don't need to be looking for God to judge the world. We need to be looking at ourselves, and we need to be working to fulfill God's mission of extending mercy to the world to reach the lost and broken with a message of hope and grace that is only found in Jesus. In light of God's scandalous compassion and dumbfounding mercy, in light of Jonah's massive failure, listen to and learn from your emotions, set aside your agenda, and finally, humble yourself before the cross. Humble yourself before the cross. The cross of Jesus is the great equalizer. Every other religion has a ranking system. For the Muslim, you can do better or worse at fulfilling the five pillars of Islam. For the Hindu, you can make it higher or lower on the caste system. For the Buddhist, you can make it further or not so far on Buddha's eightfold path to enlightenment. In all these religions and all others, there's the haves and the have-nots, the ins and the outs, the worthy and the unworthy. All religions operate like this, except for Christianity. There is no ranking system here. We are all equally broken. And we are all equally in need of grace. And so we can't stand in judgment of one another. When we trust in Jesus' work on the cross, then we necessarily reject all sense of entitlement, superiority, and self-importance. This is what Jonah struggled with. Despite saying that he feared God, despite saying that he worshipped and loved God, he still thought he was better than the Ninevites. He still thought that he was less in need of God's grace than the Ninevites, and so he thought he could stand in judgment of the Ninevites. But the truth is that when we kneel down before the cross and look to our left and look to our right, we may see 
a Nazi war criminal. We may see a member of the Taliban or Hamas. We may see the political official that we most disagree with because we are all equally sinful and we are all equally in need of grace. So church, let's humble ourselves before the cross and may our lives and attitudes be shaped by the cross. And let's reject this partisan, angry, bitter, hypocritical, angry spirit. And let's embrace the humility and grace of the cross. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Father, we're humbled as we get to the end of this book unaware of how Jonah responded, left with this question. Father, I pray that as we feel this humility, we too would use your word rightly, not standing in judgment of others, but questioning ourselves, looking at ourselves, asking ourselves, how are we living? How are we believing? How are we feeling? How are we thinking? in light of your word, responding to our enemies. And so God, speak. Speak to each one of us of our deep need for grace. Speak to each one of us about our true status in relation to everybody else, that there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Father, I pray that indeed we would rally around the cross, that this church would be unified by Jesus and his sacrifice and his sacrificial love. And God, we would be shaped by the cross in the way we treat those we relate with outside the church, in humility, in deference, with an open heart, a listening spirit in love. So God, shape us by the truth of your word, by the power of the gospel and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We are in need, God. And yet we still testify to your amazing grace. So bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.